This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kalam Institute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asirat al-Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography. In the last few sessions, we've been talking about not just a hijrah, which is the migration of the Prophet ﷺ, and for that matter, all of the believers from Mecca to Medina, and including uh, the migration of other believers such as from East Africa, Habasha, Abyssinia, and even other areas. And they were all basically gathering and congregating in the city of Yathrib, which was now officially known as Al-Madinatul Munawwara, Madinatul Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so we've been talking about the migration, and we specifically have been talking over the last couple of weeks about the arrival within Medina, the construction of the Masjid of the Prophet ﷺ, and the founding of the community there in Medina. One of the things that I've uh, alluded to over the last couple of weeks that I specifically wanted to dedicate an entire session to, and that is a survey of Medina at that time. It's very important to understand the context. Uh, without the context, you really can't understand. I, I remember when we started off this series on the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and if you go back and listen to the uh, earliest of the sessions that we covered here in the Sirah podcast, I did a very thorough uh, analysis of what Arabian society at that time was like, specifically what Makkah was like at that time. And there's a reason for that. In fact, this is not something unique that I did uniquely. But if you take a look at any very thorough uh, analysis of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, whether it was done classically or it has been done contemporarily, one thing that you'll find consistently is that they always start with with a very thorough analysis of society at that time. Why is that so important? Why is that so necessary? Because you cannot appreciate the impact of Rasulullah ﷺ. You can't appreciate his strategy, his tact, his tactfulness, his strategy, his methodology, his subtlety, and the eventual impact that he had on society, unless and until you first have an understanding of what was there to work with. What was the situation like before? You know, just like anything else, when you look at a picture of something, um, you know, it, for instance, you see a picture of a place after an earthquake. It looks pretty traumatizing and it looks pretty disastrous. But what really gives you the full impact of that circumstance or that event is when you see a before and after. When you see the before picture and you see the after picture, that's something that just completely blows your mind. I remember just the other day online, you know, on social media, somebody posted side-by-side pictures of before and after of a lot of the places in Syria since the conflict began. And it was just completely shocking. Like no matter how many times I've read about what's going on there and you feel it, when I saw the before and after pictures, it just blew my mind. I was stunned. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. 
And so before and after, that whole dynamic, and that's why we're so keen on before and after, that it gives you a full appreciation of the impact of something. And that's basically the way we, that we observe the before and after in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It's important to have, an, have a perspective about what was there before you know, the Prophet ﷺ had his impact there. Before the Qur'an had its impact there. Before Islam changed everything there. And so we did that in the beginning about Mecca and Arabian society in general. We're going to dedicate this session to talking about what was Yathrib, what was Medina like before the Prophet ﷺ came. Basically, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, what was there in Medina? What did he have to work with? What were the circumstances? What was the situation? And in fact, uh, many of the scholars of the seerah, they actually state the fact that the Prophet ﷺ himself conducted a survey of Medina. He himself, it is from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that before he would go to a place, he would inquire about the place. When he first arrived at a place, he would kind of survey and understand what exactly he was working with, who was there, who were, who were the major players, what was exact, what was going on, what were the circumstances, what were the challenges, what are the pros, what are the cons, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses. He would conduct a very thorough survey of what he was working with. And so the survey of Medina, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, Probably amongst um, classical scholars have presented some uh, situations of Medina uh, at that time, at the time of the migration. I would probably say one of the most, you know, well uh, summarized analysis of what Medina was like at the time the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina was done more contemporarily by Abu Hassan Ali Nadwi, rahimahullah ta'ala, who is an Indian scholar of great repute. He's a, he's a very well-known and authoritative Indian scholar. He passed away uh, probably about 30 years ago. And so he, in his book on the life of the Prophet ﷺ, he conducted a very good, it's thorough, Yet at the same time, very comprehensive, but summarized analysis of what Medina was like at that time. And I'll basically be taking some things from that. So the, he basically writes, and many other scholars, classical scholars have referred to this fact as well, that Medina was a very different than Makkah in its dynamic. The way that it was different was Mecca was known as a very cosmopolitan, metropolitan city. It was huge. And while Mecca had a lot of diversity, but the diversity of Mecca was in the sense of there were special events that were held in Mecca. The season of Hajj, the marketplaces of Uqad and these other marketplaces. When they would be set up, when the festivities, the carnivals, of the festivals would occur, a lot of people would flock in, but those same people would leave at the same time. So there was some, some level of the, the people of Mecca were familiar with other cultures. But at the same time, Mecca was very congruent. Mecca was very consistent in the, ma- in, the ma- in the fact that it was primarily Qurayshi territory. There was one large singular tribe that constituted the majority of Mecca. And they spoke one primary language. And there was one, if you want to call it that, there was one general faith or religion of the people there, and that was idol worship. Alright? Medina, however, was very different. Medina was a lot more uh, diverse than Mecca was. There were a lot of different ethnicities that uh, lived in Medina, and there were even different religions that coexisted in Medina. So first and foremost, you had some businessmen 
that were there in the Medinan areas, but the larger part of the population, the people that, would, that were known as the Ansar, and we talked about them, Aus and Khazraj, they were primarily farmers. So right there you had a little bit more diversity where it was not all what we would call professionals. There was a labor class in Medina at the same time. Ethnically, they were diverse because they had Jewish tribes. Three major Jewish tribes. There were a couple of smaller, smaller Jewish families and tribes as well. But there were three major tribes. The Banu, Banu Nadir, Banu Quraidha, and Banu Qaynuqa. These were the three major tribes that lived in and around Medina at that particular time. So by the present, by, by sheer... Uh, virtue of the fact that the Jews were present there, you now had ethnic diversity, because the Jews ethnically were different than the Arabs. And secondly, you had religious pluralism, because they of course did not worship idols. They were, Jew- they were, they were Jewish. Right? They practiced Judaism. And you also had some level of uh, diversity in terms of language. While, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but while the Jews of Medina had adapted to Arabic very well, and they primarily spoke Arabic, they still preserved the Hebrew language. And so automatically now you had diversity on many different fronts. And so Medina was a lot more colorful in this regard. Medina was a lot more diverse, it was a lot more varied, it was a lot more pluralistic than Mecca was. And that right off the bat presented a lot more of a unique situation. There's a little bit of uh, writing um, in terms of this, the history of the Jewish tribes that were there in Medina. It's mentioned that the Jewish tribes had arrived there. So when the Prophet ﷺ comes to Medina, the Jewish tribes had been living there for over five centuries. So they had arrived over half a millennia ago, 500 years ago, very early on. And there's a lot of discussion about how they exactly arrived there and when they arrived there. But what some of the historians note is that uh, during the time of the uh, Byzantines, the Byzantine Empire, at that particular time, they were they were subjected to a lot of persecution. They were subjected to a lot of persecution, a lot of torture, and many of them were ousted at that time by the Byzantine Empire. And that was when that they scattered to quite an extent, and they flocked, and they came and they settled in these very fertile regions of Ara- of the Arabian Peninsula, which we know as Medina today. So now getting to the core of the matter, there were three main Jewish tribes, and I've talked about them, Nadir, uh, Quraidha, and Qaynuqa. It said that uh, Banu Qaynuqa had about 700 uh, men uh, that were considered uh, what, we, what they would consider fighting age, or of the ability to fight. And that was a very interesting way to kind of measure uh, the number of a people, and to measure the strength of a people back then in ancient Arabia, because that's basically, your survival hinged on this fact. How many men do you have capable of picking up arms? So Banu... Qaynuqa had about 700 such men. Banu Nadir was probably of a similar number. Banu Quraidha was larger than the other two, had about 900, close to about a thousand men that could lift up arms. And what's very interesting and fascinating is that these three Jewish tribes, now you would assume because they had similar origins, they shared a faith, um, they shared a lot in common, and they lived amongst a majority, they were a minority amongst a majority, so that would kind of bind them together. However, these 
three tribes did not have very good relations with one another. Um, and in fact, it's mentioned that they, the two major Arab tribes of that time, which would later on become the Ansar, Aus and Khazraj, they had aligned themselves separately with these different tribes. Banu Qaynuqa had aligned itself with the tribe of Khazraj, while the other Jewish tribes, An-Nadir and Quraidha, had aligned themselves with Aus. So there was a conflict not only amongst the Arabs, there was conflict amongst the Jews, and they had aligned themselves separately. And the famous war of Bu'ath, which I made reference to in the previous sessions, when these tribes went at war with one another, and we talked about how, you know, hundreds of people were killed, which, you know, the equivalent of today would be hundreds of thousands of people dying. So it was a very, very brutal, bloody war that had occurred at that time between all these tribes. It said that, Banu Banu Qaynuqa, many of them were taken as hostage. It said up to a hundred of them were taken hostage by the other tribe, um, by Banu Qurayza and Banu Nadir. So when these Jewish tribes fighting Aus and Khazraj, Banu Qaynuqa that was with Khazraj, right? About a hundred of their men were taken as prisoners of war by Aus and the other two Jewish tribes. And they would only be freed if ransom was paid for them. And Banu Qaynuqa could not afford to pay ransom. So the other Jew, two Jewish tribes that had taken these prisoners, that had helped take these prisoners, they themselves gathered funds together and paid oaths to release the other Jewish men. So there was this weird idea of we have to look out for our own kind. But they were still at conflict, they were still in conflict and at war with one another. So it was a very troubled relationship, it was a very weird and strange dynamic. What was the geographical layout of Medina at that particular time? Well, first talking about these same Jewish tribes while we're on the topic, we're on the subject. Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir and Banu Quraidha at one time, some of the historians say, at one time all these three tribes lived in one quarters, in one place. And they had fought and kicked each other out. Banu Nadir separated from Banu Qareda and set up their own location. And Banu Qaynuqa was actually kicked out. So Banu Qaynuqa, they lived inside of Medina. They had their quarters inside of Medina. Banu, the other was Banu Nadir. They were about two or three miles north of Medina in a place called Badan. It was known as a very fertile valley, and they lived over there. And Banu Quraidha lived south of Medina in a district called Mahdur. Um, and this was a few miles south of Medina. They had all built forts that they basically lived inside of. And there's a lot of interesting discussion about the historians that if these three tribes would have allied themselves, it's very possible they could have had a central governing authority and they could have actually executed quite a bit of influence and power within Medina. But that was something that never really materialized. And in fact, in fact, they used to pay taxes to the Aus and the Khazraj for basically their protection. They used to pay taxes to Aus and Khazraj for the sake of their protection. So it's a very interesting dynamic. They were very devout. While they had, of course, the Qur'an talks about it very clearly, they had done a lot of tahrif. Uh, they had done, they had conducted a lot of distortion. They had distorted their religion terribly over the centuries and the millennia. However, whatever form of religion they still had or they still practiced at that particular time, one thing that can be said about them is that they were still quite devout when it came to their religion.
whether it was cultural or whatever the dynamic was, they were very glued and stuck to their culture and to their particular religion. Um, they had special places of worship. They actually had what we would call like schools, madaris, where they used to teach their religion to their children. And they were still training rabbis and spiritual leaders uh, within their own community. So they were definitely maintaining their whatever form of religion that they basically had. They would still celebrate their festivals, their festivities, their holidays, their celebrations. So this was something that was still going on. Their financial uh, and commercial you know, economic situation was... They over time had distorted their religion to make usury, interest, riba permissible. And so they practiced a form of business that was very advantageous to them. And that was that it was a system of economics that was based on promises, uh, liens, loans, interest, usury, a lot of IOUs, things like that. So they operated based off of the system that we are very familiar with today. Unfortunately, very unfortunately. Um, and so they operated based off of the system. And the reason why this was so advantageous to them, beneficial to them, was because the Arabs in that region, the Aus and the Khazraj, the soon to be Ansar, they were farmers. And the situation with farmers is that they deal with a lot of economic hardship. That as they're waiting for the harvest, the situation becomes quite dire. As they grow closer and closer to the harvest, their situation becomes more and more dire and, and troubling. And so they were in need of being advanced funds. I need to take a loan. I need you to go ahead and advance me some money. And that was something the Jews were willing to do with usury. Not just interest, but usury by the definition of the word, meaning they used to... Consider it very, not too different than the rate of interest on like credit card debt. How exponentially it continues to increase and build. And it just literally sucks the life out of not just that person, not just the family, but society. That was how the Jews operated. And you know, they, they had literally, they were like loan sharks. They had pawn shops that were set up. So when these Arabs would need funds, if anybody knows how a pawn shop works... Alright, just knowing how a pawn shop works is something you should do istighfar for. Right? It's, it's such a terrible thing where you take advantage of people. And so these Jews basically offer, operated pawn shops at that time. And people would come and they would take their weapons, they would take their goods, they would take their, so much so they would take their dishes. Like they could bring their plates, their cups from their homes, their clothes. So when you talk about the shirt off of the guy's back, Literally, they could bring their clothes and put it down as collateral. And eventually it got to a point where to take advantage of these people, when a lot of these Arabs and a lot of these farmers ran out of things that they could put down as collateral, the Jews started um, proposing that they would bring their children in, that they would bring their families in, their women folk in. And they would hold them, keep them as collateral. And of course, that was something very problematic. And at the first mention of this, there were quite a few fights that broke out. At the suggestion of this, there were, there was, there were some, you know, killing and some fighting that basically occurred. And it just was a very seriously deteriorating situation. 
So over time, they had become very financially, they had positioned themselves very well economically. And the, the Arab tribes had continued to find themselves in a deeper and deeper hole. And this led to a lot of tension. However, at the same time, uh, some of the historians note that they were not foolish at the same time, where they basically didn't want to become the common enemy of the Os and the Khazraj. Because eventually the Os and the Khazraj would unite against the fact that these folks, these, this minority that lives on our land amongst us is taking advantage of us, and they would become united. So they didn't want to become the common enemy, and become an excuse for them to become united. So from time to time they were known to forgive debts, to even give a lot of money back, just to kind of keep the 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 balance of power to be able to keep everything in play because it was very again beneficial to them and when the prophet sallallahu arrived this was all basically topsy turvy everything was thrown upside down and the whole situation drastically changed i talked about the language that the jews of this place they had been there for 500 plus years they had totally adopted Arabic, but Hebrew was preserved amongst them, mainly for two reasons, worship and academics. So it was preserved amongst them for the purpose of worship, they still worshipped in Hebrew, and number two was for academic reasons, to read the scripture, and their scholars were more well versed in Hebrew, and they would in fact travel uh, out, their scholars would travel about, travel around to other Jewish tribes to p- polish up, to brush up on their Hebrew, um, because it was still seen to have a lot of academic value. Very similar to how we probably function with Arabic today, where it still has a role, it still has a place in terms of worship and in academics. And, and so it was not too different than that. Um, one other thing that, uh, Alama Nadwi rahimahullah ta'ala here talks about, Sheikh Nadwi talks about, and that was one thing that's very peculiar is that the Jews did not heavily engage in propagation of their religion. Even though, again, these people were ripe for the picking. They were, they were ripe for the picking. Like, they, very easily they could have gotten these folks to convert. But they were not very keen. They weren't motivated to, pop, to propagate their religion. There were a couple of reasons for this. Number one was, this just wasn't a motivation for them. And number two, some Jewish families and some Jewish tribes were actually of the beliefs where that these people, they saw them to be lower than them. They saw them to be of a lower class. These are jahil, these are ignorant, illiterate, uh, stone-worshipping, wood-worshipping, idol-worshipping heathens. And we don't want any part of these people. We do thanks but no thanks. We'd rather not have you in our community. And this was the arrogant approach that they had. And just as a side note, because by now, if you've been attending or listening, you know that I'm prone to doing this, that we have to be very careful that we don't have this type of a mentality. And this same dynamic, unfortunately, very unfortunately, plays out in certain pockets of the Muslim community. Right? Many different parts of the world. And even a lot of immigrant communities when they first arrived here, we have to be very careful that we don't develop that type of a mentality. That we don't see the local population as being dirty, filthy, heathenistic, you know, hedonistic, just, you know, worthless human beings. Like they're hopeless, they're dirty, they're filthy, they're pointless. We have to be very careful we don't have to develop that type of, you know, spiritual arrogance. Because that's the beginning of the end of a, of a community. 
That's exactly the type of spiritual arrogance that they had. And guess what? They had this type of spiritual arrogance. The Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina. And a decade later, these people are nowhere to be found. They were literally wiped clean. And I'm not talking about like they were massacred or something. No, they were just gone. They just dissipated. Many of their people converted. Many of their people scattered. Like this, is, this was directly, like we say, from above. This was divine. But this is a punishment of God that will come upon any community, whether they be on the on the batil or even if they're on the haq, especially if they're on the haq. Meaning they do believe in the truth, but at the second they become spiritually arrogant, and they, 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 they become spiritually elitist, spiritually elitist, that's the beginning of the end. That's the downfall. Allah will replace him with another people. And so we have to be very careful about this particular perspective. And that's why not just the Prophet ﷺ, not just the Sahaba, but our scholars over 1400 years have talked about the importance of empathy, and love, and compassion, and acceptance. Right? We Just not too long ago in the, in the sessions about the migration, the hijrah, we talked about the Prophet ﷺ coming across two thieves, two crooks, bandits, criminals, murderers, robbers, right? Carjackers. And the Prophet ﷺ does what? He greets them, sits with them, meets with them with great respect. Very respectfully meets them and greets them and values them as human beings. And when they introduce themselves as terrible people, as wretched human beings, نَحْنُ muhaman. The Prophet, نَحْنُ muhanan. The Prophet says, لَا بَلْ أَنْتُمَا mukraman. No, rather you are dignified, honorable people. And they come to Islam, they accept Islam. So that's something very important for us to consider and to take into consideration. And unfortunately, this dynamic existed within there. And it in fact talks about the fact that the Arabs, the few Arabs that did convert to Judaism, it was either by, by means of marriage amongst the Jews, and therefore their children would basically adopt the Jewish, uh, Jewish religion. Um, another aspect of this was, um, you know, maybe they suffered some type of a tragedy, like a specific dynamic that some of the historians note, that if there was, uh, there was an Arab family that had lost a couple of children in a row, like infant mortality, they had lost a couple of children in a row, they would basically take some type of an oath or a nether that the next child that will be born will be dedicated to this Jewish religion. That anything that will work, that will prevent my child from dying. And that child would live and they would raise him as a Jew. They would get him a Jewish teacher and they would raise him as a practicing Jew. Um, and so this was another dynamic at that time. The oaths in the Khazraj we've talked about before. Um, but basically it talks about how the oaths occupied the southern and eastern region of the city of Medina. Um, and that was kind of called the upper part of town, uptown. Um, and then there was the, the Khazraj inhabited what was called downtown. Um, and that was basically the central and the northern regions. I know that seems counterintuitive, but whatever. That's how they understood it. There were four clans. 
um, that branched out from the Khazraj. And all of them belonged to Banu Najjar, and they all lived in the central area, and that was where the masjid was constructed. So I'm describing a little bit of the geographical layout of uh, Medina. The Aus, they primarily were settled in areas that were very good farming areas. And they lived side by side with a lot of these Jewish communities. Um, and, and the Khazras lived in less fertile regions, and they were neighbors with the Qaynuqa who lived inside of Medina. Alama uh, Nadwi, Sheikh Nadwi again here, <clears throat> he says that I'm, uh, after looking through a lot of different historical accounts and scholarly works, I'm not able to estimate very uh, accurately what the Arab population of Medina was. But he says that the, um, one, the only number that I was able to come across was that when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, there was about four, th- uh, that, no, no, he talks about that when Fatshu Makkah occurred. When Fatshu Makkah occurred, um, on that particular day, the Aus and the Khazraj, the Ansar accounted for about 4,000 of the 10,000 soldiers that marched onto Makkah. So he says this is the only real number that I'm able to kind of get an idea that this was a community that probably at that particular time was somewhere between five, six thousand people. I mentioned in the previous session maybe it was a thousand, two thousand, but it was probably a little bit larger than that, maybe about four or five thousand people, including the women and the children, which still isn't a very large population. But nevertheless, some uh, semblance of a small city was present there in Medina. When the Prophet ﷺ came there uh, to Medina, of course, like we talked about, the the while the Jews had positioned themselves economically, political power and the control of the region was very much still in the hands of the Arabs at that particular time. The Aus and the Khazraj uh, had fought against one another a number of times as well. The Jewish tribes had eventually entered into that conflict as well. And so... The Prophet ﷺ was really a unifying force for the Arabs and even for the Jews to quite an extent and eventually this situation would play out which we'll talk about uh, going forward in the seerah. Um, the Medina was separated into a lot of different neighborhoods. The Jews of course had their forts that were constructed. Um, and some of the early historians actually talk about that there were about 59 Jewish forts that were in and around Medina. And so Medina had quite a bit of construction that was done in and around it. Um, and they had really, these forts weren't maybe how we're thinking of them. Because when we hear fort, we think of, you know, maybe the, the European type forts or the Mughal forts in India. These weren't the type of forts. These were, for, what's meant by a fort was that a few families would live together. They would have a little bit of a barn. They would have some animals that they raised there. And it was just a wall or a boundary that would be put around this little area or this this little territory, this courtyard. And that was basically the idea of a fort. Um, the religious and social order um, was something very interesting. Even the Arabs in Medina deferred to the Quraysh when it came to their religion, before Islam. They deferred to the Quraysh when it came to their religion, when it came to general social order um, in Medina, it was the Quraysh that was still dictating a lot of things. Because the Quraysh were just the leadership of all the Arabs. 
And their leadership was recognized all throughout the, the Arab lands. And so the Quraysh still had quite a bit of influence. And that was an interesting dynamic that the Prophet ﷺ had to work with when he first came there. And so the religion that was pr- predominant before the arrival of Islam was again the worship of those same idols, Allah wal Uzza wal Manat. The same idols, um, they were um, basically uh, the religion of the people even before the uh, even before Islam. So that's in that sense they were very similar. One thing that it kind of mentions as well is that the. Quraysh themselves, while they saw the Aus and Khazraj as being more simple folk, farming people, they still respected them as quote-unquote pure-blooded Arabs. Because they were considered from the branch of the Arabs of the Qahtan, they were Qahtani, and so they identified the fact that at least these are one of our people. Um, and their intermarriage between the Aus and the Khazraj and Quraysh was actually quite common. And that's why we know the Prophet ﷺ had relationships there because his great-grandmother um, was also Hashim's wife, was also from there. Abdul Muttalib's mother was from that area. She was from Banu Najjar, um, and she, uh, she, her name was Salma bint Amr. She was from Banu Najjar, which was from the, a family from Khazraj. Um, however, again, like I said, over time, um, the Quraysh looked down at farming and agriculture as a means of livelihood. They saw it as being a labor class. And they were traders, they were businessmen, and so they were naturally considered uh, a little bit more lofty. Medina had a very interesting culture to it. They were not wealthy people. They were not very lavish people. They were very simple people. In fact, one of the things we'll talk about a little bit later on is that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha actually talks about how she had a very nice kind of like a dress, like an overdress, almost like a cloak that you would wear over your dress, that women would wear over their dress. She had this very nice cloak that, and she comments that dozens of the girls of the Ansar were married in my cloak. Meaning that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha's cloak to wear over your dress was so nice that whenever there would be a wedding amongst the Ansar, that they would request the cloak of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. And that wasn't just simply due to the barakah and the blessing of it being the cloak of Aisha. It was also just because it was nice. It was nicer than anything they had. And so that cloak would be sent and they would wear it. And she says, dozens of the girls of the Ansar were married in that cloak. So they're very simple folk compared to Quraysh. They're simple people. They weren't as lavish, not as luxurious, right? However, at the same time, the scholars at the same time, the historians note that life in Medina wasn't very tough. It wasn't harsh. Like they weren't like struggling. They weren't like struggling for food. They weren't starving. It was simple, and maybe part of the secret was the simplicity. But they were farmers. They ate what they grew with their hands. And they milked their goats. And they pulled up well, uh, water from the well. And so they ate dates. And they ate what they grew from the ground. They milked their goats and sheep. You know, meat wasn't a huge part of their diet. Simple folk. And they pulled up the water from the wells. And that was it. So life had a certain comfort in Medina. 
There was always something to eat. You could always get a few dates, a handful of dates and drink some water, or drink a little half a bowl of milk and that's it. I mean, what more do you need really? If you got a handful of dates and you got a bowl of milk, you're pretty much set. And that was life in Medina. So it was simple, but it was comfortable. And part of that secret must have been the simplicity itself. So it's kind of this circular thing. Right? And, and so, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ even comments, we know a valuable, a very valuable quality of iman in a believer is what? Qana'ah. What is qana'ah? Anybody can tell me the translation of qana'ah? Contentment. To be content, to be satisfied. I'm good. Alhamdulillah. The alhamdulillah life. Right? It's all good. Alhamdulillah. Right? So the contentment, the qana'ah is a quality of iman, the quality of a mu'min, a believer. But you know what the Prophet ﷺ says in a beautiful hadith? He says, Al-Badadha, إِنَّ الْبَذَادَةَ تَمِنَ الْإِيمَانِ Al-Badadha. And Badadha means simplicity. So he says, simplicity is from faith, and that's how the believer finds contentment. So it's a very beautiful thing. Um, and so they were, they were very well known for their dates. And in fact, the Quraysh used to trade with the Ansar specifically for their dates. And the Prophet ﷺ's father, Abdullah, if you remember, he passed away. Where? He passed away in Medina. Doing business with the, uh, with, with, uh, with the Arabs there, with the Aus and the Khazraj. And the father of the Prophet ﷺ was gone there. He was sent there to do what business? He was sent by his father, the grandfather of Rasulullah ﷺ, Abdul Muttalib, to go and negotiate the next year's worth of date supply to Makkah. So they were very well known for their dates. Um, so they also, it's a little bit of a talk about what their food and what their culture and what their economy was. So they also did grow other things there, such as barley and wheat. Uh, they grew some types of vegetables, some, some limited amount of beans and things like that. And so this was basically what their uh, general... Uh, lifestyle was like, Makkah and Medina used the same currency at that time. And that was either the Byzantine currency or the Persian one. Both which were made of silver. And that was primarily what they used. Um, also the people of Medina, and we find this in the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. So when you look at our fiqh, when you look at the ahadith about business, and you look at the early fiqh of Islam, for instance, if you look at a lot of our fiqh, um, in terms of Sadaqatul uh, Fitr, uh, Zakatul Fitr. When you look at that, you find this reflected within the fiqh the Prophet ﷺ taught us. The legal system in regards to a lot of measurements. And that is the people of Medina used to use volume more than weight. The people of Medina used volume more than weight. And that's why, that's why, when you read the fiqh of things like Sadaqatul Fitr, Zakatul Fitr, when you read the fiqh of transaction, the Prophet ﷺ, that he explained, you know what type of verbiage you find? So one of the words that the Prophet ﷺ used to tell us what is zakatul fitr, what is sadaqatul fitr, is the word sa'ah. It's the word sa'ah. And sa'ah is described as being two hands full. Is that volume or weight? That's volume. That's volume. When the Prophet ﷺ gave us the business ethics, he said, Yadan bi yadin. 
And that doesn't just literally mean it, means it needs to exchange hands. Because even when talking about dates, he says, Yadan bi yadin. One hand in exchange for another hand. Meaning what? Volume. He's talking about volume, not weight. And so the Medinans, the Medinans used to use volume more than they used weight. And that was also reflective of their lifestyle. Because they weren't businessmen, they were farmers. And so they, it was what they could put their hands on, what they could feel, what they could hold. That was what was the worth of something, is what they could put their hands on. And um, there were some bazaars, so a little bit of the culture there was, there were some bazaars and markets in Medina. Um, pretty much everything was imported, um, all the goods and things like that that they would normally sell in the bazaars. A lot of it was imported, uh, cloth, jewelry. The Jews uh, were very much heavily invested into the uh, cloth market, the textile industry or market. Um, they were they were basically controlling that the, that market there. Um, and life, like I talked about, life in Medina pretty much before Islam came was generally pretty comfortable. And all in all, as I talked about, it was a little bit more diverse, um, where. It was a lot more diverse in terms of ethnicity, tribe, culture, language, and most importantly, religion, than Mecca was. And that just added to the task, the complexity of the mission of the Prophet ﷺ. That he wasn't just dealing with idol worshippers anymore. Now he was dialoguing with the Jews. And that added different elements. There were different cultures. There were different ethnicities. There were different dynamics that were at play here. There were different tribes. There was all of Quraysh. And at the end of the day, even though the families of Quraysh would have small, small little rivalries about who could give more food to the hujjaj, or who would have a better poet, or who would, you know, dress up their, uh, their, their homes a little bit nicer when the season of hajj came or whatever. These little, little small rivalries. Competition, healthy competition. But in Medina, there were serious conflict. Aws and Khazraj had killed hundreds of one another. That the Prophet ﷺ had to resolve. The Jewish tribes and their economic situation, economic stronghold, stranglehold is what I would call it, over Medina was something the Prophet ﷺ had to deal with. And he had to work around. So there was definitely a lot more complexity which only makes us appreciate the Prophet Sallallahu task and his job and his, his, his accomplishments even more. But all in all, one thing that as it, we, we talked about a few lessons throughout the thing. The one thing was that the Jewish tribes... So if you want to talk about, you know, a, a kitab, a, a deen samawi, what in Arabic is called deenun samawiyun like a heavenly religion, a scripture-based religion. The Jews were there before the Muslims. Judaism was there before Islam. But it did not become the religion of the people. And the people did not adopt it because that was because of their spiritual arrogance towards the people. While the Prophet ﷺ arrived with open arms, with humility, with a commonality, sitting with them, talking to them, dialoguing with them, accepting them, loving them, embracing them. That's one very powerful lesson that we learn from this. The second thing that we learn and that we understand from this is that the ultimate unifier at the end of the day, the Jewish tribes, they fought with one another. These Arabs, those in Khazraj, they had a common enemy and they still fought with one another. The ultimate unifier is faith, it is iman. And nothing will unify us 
like iman will, and nothing will unify us without iman. And if we aim to achieve unity, we need to go back to that iman. When the Prophet ﷺ came and injected iman into that equation, it unified their people. And so iman is the ultimate unifier. And lastly and finally, the Prophet ﷺ didn't go with blinders in. He didn't charge in. Just knocking everything over, just Islam, 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 Islam. The Prophet ﷺ understood, where am I going? Who am I dealing with? What is the situation of these people? What is their religion? What is their culture? What is their economy? And he had a very strategic, very strategic, methodical approach to introducing them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then introducing them to the Messenger of Allah then introducing them to the Qur'an, introducing them to Islam, and step by step by step. And as, inshallah, as we proceed through the seerah, we'll talk about the gradualism. That's something we've been covering in the class a lot with the students, in usul, in fiqh, in ulum al-Qur'an, in the history of the Qur'an. And in the seerah, we've been talking about the gradualism. That that was the philosophy of the sharia. To gradually bring these people towards the practice of Islam and the religion. And that was all part of the intelligence of Islam and part of the strategy of Rasulullah ﷺ. If we want, if we strive at any level to be impactful in the society we live in, we need to be very well aware and well acquainted with you know, our society. And where we live in, and who our neighbors are, and who do we share space with. And until and unless we understand the people, we will not understand the needs of the people, and we won't understand how to properly present Islam to a people. So that intelligence, and that knowledge, and that, that surveying of one society, is an important part, is a very necessary part, of being effective preachers and propagators of the religion of Islam within a society, within a culture, within a people, within a civilization. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept us all for the propagation of His deen. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us a means of introducing and bringing all of mankind to Islam. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.